Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek, the best way to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 11th, 2018. On this week's episode, we highlight the Chicago White Sox weekend series win in Boston. Wait, is that right? The White Sox went into Boston and won a series against a team with the best record in the American League? That can't be right. Of course it's right. This White Sox squad is showing life as they are finding a groove in large thanks to better starting pitching with the return of Carlos Rodon and newfound ace Dylan Covey. We'll also recap the Major League Baseball draft with our good friend Jim Callis. Jim shares what went down on draft day and what could possibly have influenced the White Sox decision to take Nick Madrigal instead of Brady Sainer, the quality of talent the White Sox drafted in the second and third rounds with Steel Walker Connor Pinkleton, and where Madrigal fits into the White Sox top prospect list. Later on will be the minor league reports and updating of what's going on through the minor league affiliates as the first halves are rounding out, and at the end we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me in what I hope is a fun show is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. What a great weekend for White Sox baseball. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Yohan Mon- yeah, Moncada looked yeah, a little bit nervous and <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I would have liked to see more from him, but yeah, I guess winning two of three is okay. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But no, I can't believe it. I thought they were going to get their butts handed to them. 
And uh, I, I just I'm fascinated on how they did this. The White Sox only scored eight runs over the weekend, which that's yeah. If you told me the White Sox are going to score eight runs against the Red Sox in three games, totally believe that. But they held the Red Sox, Jim, to six runs, and the White Sox are now six and four in June. They're twenty two and forty one overall. And just to quickly recap the series, they won the first game one to nothing as Dylan Covey outdueled Chris Sale. Game two, the defensive miscues were costly as Carlos Rodon returned, but the Red Sox won four to two. And game three, the White Sox won five to two as Tim Anderson and Yomer Sanchez made some really good defensive plays. And Daniel Polka helped out big time with a clutch hit in the ninth inning. And for me, Jim, the big storylines coming out of this weekend is the White Sox starting pitching. Mm-hmm. I thought Boston would score six runs per game, not just six runs total this weekend. Started with Dylan Covey. This is not the same guy as last year. And I keep asking you, what is different about him? Do we have a better idea what is allowing Covey to be this successful? Well, I think he's throwing harder for one. You know, the velocity is... 94, 95, rather than 90, 91, 92. And I think when it comes to a sinker baller and, and a, you know, a, a guy who you'd want to see more strikeouts from because, uh, you know, last year has, you know, throwing 90, 91, maybe it works one time through the order, although he got lit up in the first inning too. But, uh, you know, there's only so much, so many looks you can offer with like a 90 mile per hour sinker. 94, even if you know it's coming, it's a little bit tougher to square up. So there's that. Also, you know, you have to remember, I think that Covey was a Rule 5 pick last year. Um, you know, he went from AA and, and kind of an abbreviated AA season to the majors and had to hang around uh, the majors to fulfill, you know, the the obligations that Rule 5 picks have. And, you know, he wasn't a finished product. And so he had to go down to Charlotte. And I think that, you know, heading down and, and pitching uh, a couple months with the Knights in low-pressure situation and kind of a more appropriate role for him as a AAA starter um, you know, certainly helped. It, it kind of was the missing link in his development. So I think, you know, add that in a little bit more maturity and a little bit more command with stronger stuff. And he's healthy. You know, he, that's the other thing is that you know, he had oblique problems the last two seasons. And, you know, this season, you know, knock on wood, he's fully healthy. And I think that allows him to, you know, unlock a little bit more. So add that all up and you get a guy who at least, you know, is a good five, six inning starter, at least, you know, first uh, four or five times uh, you know, against major league uh, opponents this year. Against Boston, he threw six scoreless innings, only allowing three hits, one walk, and had seven strikeouts. Only four base runners in six innings going toe-to-toe against Chris Sale. And I know you'll have your top 10 White Sox wins list at the end of the year. I have to figure this is an early nominee, right? Yes, I created the top winner tag for it, <laughs> figuring like it'd be an easier way to you know, uh, summon the feel-good wins of the season, and that would be one of them. If the oblique injury, which is totally possible, that could have really cut into Covey's fastball velocity, where he now is throwing 96 miles an hour instead of 91, then I am a firm believer that this number that I'm going to read is only going to go up. Last year, Dylan Covey was worth negative 1.3 wins above replacement, according to BaseballReference.com. In 2018, Jim, he's at 0.8 wins above replacement after five starts. That is a two-win difference from what we saw from Dylan Covey last year to today. Can this keep up? I think I'm, you know, I guess it depends on, 
how he's managed. I think in a one nothing game against Chris Sale, uh, Rick Renteria was very um, conservative. I think he threw 80-something pitches, 83, 87, something like that. Um, you know, he wasn't pushed uh, a third time through the order uh, aggressively, and I think that's a smart move. Um, although I did like, in this start against Boston, he was able to get a couple strikeouts high in the zone. Uh, I, I think when it comes to a sinker baller, a sinker slider type, uh, you know, they can only maybe get five innings uh, into the sixth before, you know, opponents see them enough and kind of really target low in the zone and even, you know, learn how to swing below the ball a little bit and, and anticipate it a bit better. So seeing them change eye levels and, and get some strikeouts, even if they weren't mistakes, maybe, maybe if they weren't, uh, uh, you know, where he's intending to throw it, getting some swings and misses uh, above the belt, I think was a nice uh, way to give him a different look third time through the order. So I like that, but you know, I, I think his numbers are kind of a little bit contingent on just how aggressive Renteria is or how conservative he is. Um, you know, try not to expose him too often to the third time through or maybe even a fourth time through if, if he gets, uh, you know, through the uh, sixth inning okay. Um, but I think, you know, if, if they're really conservative and, you know, given his health problems uh, in the past, that I think, you know, that's another reason to not overextend him. Uh, if he ends up being a five-plus, six-plus inning starter, um, you know, maybe he doesn't go in the seventh too often. I think that could probably keep his numbers to be, you know, fairly favorable to keep, you know, I guess that uh, uh, that war number rising and maybe get towards two wins at the end of the season. One of my favorite White Sox Twitter accounts is development isn't linear. It's at shy Sox 2727. He makes me laugh often while watching games, but he brought up a an interesting point, and I think he meant this half jokingly. But could Dylan Covey be the White Sox Jake Arietta? I don't think so, just because Arietta had the cutter too. So I think Arietta sucked before. Oh, he oh, came oh to yeah. The I'm just trying to think like in terms of like the strikeout stuff that I think yeah, you know, okay. I think that's you know, the swings and misses I don't think are gonna be there for Covey in the same way. But when it comes to um you know, perhaps a rotation mainstay of a sort, you know, even if he's maybe the fourth best starter on paper, you know, that's, you know, for, for what Covey's making and for what they expected from him and where they got him, you know, that's certainly more than valuable, but, uh, you know, given his health problems, I'm a little bit, yeah, I guess I'm a little bit, uh, bearish on him, just his long-term forecast, just because he has had the injury issues and he has, um, you know, that, and that has limited him quite a bit in, in previous seasons and multiple previous seasons. Um, so I guess I'm a little bit bearish on him long-term, but, you know, if he can stay healthy, if he can throw 94, 95, that's where he sits from the next few seasons. It seems like he can be, you know, come out of nowhere to be, uh, you know, a 25 start a year guy. And, you know, there, there's no knocking that based on a rule five pick, you know, that's, uh, asking for more than that, I think would be greedy. It's more along the situation though, because I, I will find it fascinating if this is how Dylan Covey pitches from now on like this is the norm this is a guy who's going to carry a three era as you mentioned for like at least 25 starts in a year because before Arietta joined the cubs he was a pitcher that had a lot of promise right but injuries just prevented him from being effective at all oh, yeah and the orioles well yeah it's true it <laughs> is the orioles uh but i i, I wonder here Maybe I'll say maybe, but if Kobe definitely turns out to be a reliable starter in a couple of years and he's a fixture in the White Sox starting rotation, then yeah, Dylan Covey is the White Sox, Jake Arrieta. I don't know if Kobe's going to be a Cy Young award winner and go on one of the 
league's best ever like seasons that Jake Arrieta posted, but it is something to to think about because man, I mean Jake Arrieta in his career went from zero to hero and it was that transition to go from the Baltimore Orioles to the Chicago Cubs. So, I don't know, something to think about as we continue to move on down this year and see how Kobe operates uh in the next what 5 years of control the White Sox have him for. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, like, you know, hopefully yeah. we're thinking about him five years from now. <laughs> I right. think that's one of the, the uh, I, I've written a, about a few bad seasons. And one of the tough things about writing for it is that, you know, you do look for bright spots and sometimes you make a little bit too much of them. So I guess maybe that's why I'm a little bit more conservative about Kobe, just because, you know, there have been uh, flash in the pans that don't quite stay. And so um, I might be a little bit behind on him, but uh, I like what I've seen so far and just that, you know, every uh, successive start, he's added a new wrinkle to maybe think that it's there's more to it than just, um, you know, a sinker baller, uh, sinker slider type getting lucky for a few starts in a row that, that he's more than like, say, a Dylan Axelrod. Yeah, I'm I'm still in the mindset that he's going to blow up at any moment. And this has been a fun couple of weeks. But if he's going to keep surprising me like this, I mean, by all means, go for it. This is a lot better than watching you melt down yeah. <laughs> on the mound. Yep. Uh, so it's something to pay attention to as Dylan Covey will have another big test this upcoming week. We'll preview that in our series preview as the White Sox will be facing the Indians this week. The second big storyline, of course, sticking with the starting pitching, is Carlos Rodon, his return. Defensively, especially from Tim Anderson, did not help Carlos Rodon at all as they allowed two unearned runs to score. Rodon did give up home runs to Jackie Bradley Jr. and J.D. Martinez, but his first start in 2018 was five innings pitched, six hits allowed, four runs allowed, two of them earned the two home runs, two walks, and seven strikeouts. What do you take away from Rodon's start, Jim? What did you like? I like the fastball. I like that um, he was able to not only sustain velocity, I think he tried to be a little conservative early with, um, you know, kind of uh, maybe not overextending himself or overtaxing himself. He threw a lot of like 91, 92 early on as he was settling in and trying to throw strikes. And then Bradley burned him for the homer on a 91 mile per hour fastball that was down the middle. And after that, that seemed to wake him up a bit. Maybe it was because he didn't have a slider, and so he was, if he's going to be fastball changeup, the fastball needs to be bigger. So he found 93, 94, 95. Uh, so that was nice to see you know, him find that uh, when it looked early like he still might be, uh, I guess, restoring a little bit to his fastball. Uh, the slider, I guess, was the, I wouldn't call the biggest disappointment, but the biggest thing missing, especially early on. He found it for an inning, the, the good slider, the wipeout slider. Uh, before and after that, he was mainly fastball changeup and the changeup isn't really a pitch he can get by on for more than a surprise or, you know, more than a show me pitch. Uh, but you know, for a first start coming back from shoulder surgery, I love this stuff. Um, didn't look like he was missing anything. He still had the ability to, you know, take command of an inning when it looked like it was going awry. He was able to find the big wipeout stuff, get strikeouts up in the zone, get strikeouts down in the zone, throw the wipeout slider to lefties that, uh, you know, we haven't seen from a White Sox starter this year. So I love that. Um, I guess next time out, I would just like to see, you know, the the ability to throw the slider for strikes, you know, the, the sweeping one for grabbing strikes early in the count, uh, the harder slider for, you know, putting guys away. He had that uh, hard slider for an inning and then it kind of got away from him. And I guess I'd like to see, you know, from the first inning forward, just a little bit more slider control. We got a fan question from Twitter from White Sox Ryan. And Ryan is asking, it's probably an unpopular opinion, but if Rodon comes back and pitches well for four to five starts, 
Do the White Sox look to trade him? I think he's got all the talent in the world and could be an ace, but I do not trust his health at all and worry that one more injury would ruin any trade value Rodon has and the White Sox have an arsenal of young arms waiting to come up. Your thoughts about that, Jim? Uh, I think if you're thinking that about trading him, other teams are thinking that and acquiring him. So, you know, trading him for a guy or, you know, maybe like a top 100, you know, back into the top 100 prospect um, doesn't really do much for me. So I think I'd rather take my chances that Rodon, you know, I guess is limited to, you know, five starts a season, never quite puts it together and is traded rather than, um, you know, uh, is traded for a mildly interesting prospect who, you know, if he pans out, might be as good as Carlos Rodon has been uh, the first couple of seasons, has Rodon's White Sox career. So I'm not a, I'm not a big proponent of trading him just because I think, you know, if you're going to get anything from him, value, whether it comes from trading or performance, it's going to be on the performance end where he's helping the White Sox win uh, as early as they can. And the White Sox are still going to need that veteran in the starting rotation, unless you think they're going to pick up James Shields' option after the year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Miguel Gonzalez will be out too. And, um, you know, it's, there will still be rotation vacancies and, and prospects who will need more time at AAA. So it won't be Kopech, but I mean, like if you're th- thinking about Dane Dunning or Alec Hansen, who's been kind of MIA this season, um, you know, it's, I, I don't think you want an all prospect rotation, even if, you know, all those prospects look, you know, like they warrant a rotation spot just to test them out. And I will have to say that if you are still hopeful for 2019, a healthy starting rotation of Carlos Rodon and Ronaldo Lopez and Lucas Giolito and Michael Kopak, and then you add in a filler like Dylan Covey, maybe he's not a filler, maybe he's the ace. Uh, <laughs> I feel a lot better about that starting rotation where what did we see in April and May, Jim? Just a rotation that was held by duct tape and then injuries and inconsistencies just led to an early season disaster. One of the the worst that we have seen in White Sox history. Uh, so I I don't like the idea of trading Carlos Rodon and hope that they never have to trade Carlos Rodon. And hopefully Carlos Rodon could stay healthy because I still believe, Jim, that he can be an all-star caliber starting pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. And he's just got to yeah, stay I- healthy. I am, uh, you know, watching him at SoxFest, watching him kind of come out of his shell and be really personable and, and show a sense of humor and outgoingness. I, I would like to see Rodon, you know, I guess sustain excellence, you know, through the rest of the season, or find excellence, I should say, because he hasn't quite gotten there yet um, this season. But, you know, kind of show that upside that they, you know, everybody expected when they picked him uh, third overall. Because I think, you know, before he was a little bit, I wouldn't call him, you know, uh, uh, churlish or anything, but just a little bit, um, you know, closed off and especially with the injuries and, and, you know, how he hit it and how awkward that was, um, you know, didn't really win fans, but I think, you know, there can be a fan favorite here that, um, you know, when you, when you mix in his, uh, his stuff and just his ability to, you know, blow guys away and, and, you know, rack up double digit strikeouts, throw that in with a, a guy who's more engaging. Um, then I think, you know, th- there's a possibility to where, you know, you, you would think like, I can't believe I thought about trading this guy. Right. Uh, so, so I'm hoping to see that from him just because I was really surprised by the guy I saw at Sox Fest. Uh, it, I really hadn't seen that from him at any point. And uh, when it comes to, you know, kind of leading a rotation, being that, you know, like you said, uh, that veteran, I, I think he's somebody who could adopt that and, and kind of set a tone 
at the top of the rotation being somebody who um, is somebody that prospect pitchers want to top start to start. <laughs> if, if Rodon strikes out nine, they want to strike out 10. And if Rodon goes six, they want to go seven. You know, that'd be that kind of uh, tone setter at the top of the rotation. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it follows through to our next talking point of the starting pitching. And that's Ronaldo Lopez. And unlike Rodon, Lopez got some help on defense on Sunday from Tim Anderson making a terrific play. Yomer Sanchez starting a crucial 5-4-3 double play. As you mentioned the top, Yohan Makata did make a mistake, and he made things stressful as he botched a ground ball that did allow a run to score. But Lopez went six and a third innings, allowed six hits, two runs, only one of them earned. He did walk three, and he had six strikeouts. And Jim, I know there's been a lot of chatter about how good Lopez actually is. And I get it. The advanced metrics point out that Lopez might be getting lucky, but we are 13 starts into 2018 and Lopez is sporting a 3.26 ERA, which I think then if you think he's lucky, this is a really long stretch of luck that Lopez is going through at the moment. I'm starting to feel confident that the White Sox will be competitive and have a chance to win when Lopez is on the mound. Do you feel the same way? I think so. I think it's kind of, yeah, I would say it's somewhat apparent early in his starts, I guess, how successful he's going to be, or at least uh, yeah, when he's when he comes out throwing, you know, he's had some starts where the velocity isn't there. He throws 94, 95, and you just get a sense early that it's going to be a struggle. Whereas in, in starts like uh, the one against Boston, the one before where he comes out throwing 97, 98, you at least like his chances to get through the lineup a couple times. After that, it might get a little dicey. Uh, and, and against Boston, he lost his release point for a couple hitters at a time, and you started missing arm side high and wide. And, um, you know, that's, I think, a, a thing that's going to, um, you know, being a young pitcher and being somebody who has to throw hard and is more of a max effort guy, um, maximizing his frame and such, you know, that'll probably happen and I'll, that'll probably be part of his development. But when it comes to, you know, a starter going through the league a first time, first full season, I really don't get too wrapped up in luck or at least, um, you know, peripherals. I think it's more important to log the innings, to get used to getting up and down six times uh, a game every five days against major league talent. And then things will start to sort itself out, whether, you know, whether your stuff uh, runs out and you're only pitching three or four innings, like say Carson Fulmer did. Uh, I, I think that reveals itself somewhat soon you know, over the course of a season. So when it comes to his peripherals, like I, we've talked about before, I think of him more as a number three or number four starter in, in a uh, division winning rotation. I don't think he's top of the line, but um, when he comes out against Boston, he, he strikes out six, gets more, a little bit more of a swing and miss stuff and is able to maintain that top line velocity and, and command his fastball and, and, and kind of direct his whole game with his fastball and then save the slider for, um, you know, I guess strikeout situations. I do like that guy a lot more, and I'm hoping that when things are settled and his final form is more or less uh, achieved, that he's mainly somebody who can push hitters around with his fastball and save his slider for later. Is he polished? By no means. There's opportunities for Lopez to get better. But if you're asking a guy who's pitching this well to get better, I'm excited what lays ahead for Ronaldo Lopez. And... Like I said, every time he's on the mound right now, I'm feeling confident that the White Sox are going to be in it and they have a chance to win, and he's a very large part of that. 
Now that we shift gears and the Chicago White Sox will be coming home to face the Cleveland Indians for the midweek series, before we preview that series, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, plan a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you to the closer to the action for a great value. As I mentioned before, I have SeatGeek. I love SeatGeek as it saves me a lot of time and money as it searches multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals through their deal score. I'm able to upload tickets to my phone so I don't have to print them. They just have to scan my phone and I easy access into the stadium. And I use SeatGeek. I bought Jim Tomey tickets for August 11th. So if you want a Jim Tomey bobblehead, highly recommend using SeatGeek. They have great deals. And I was also able to score some tickets in September when the Angels come into town so I could see Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and hopefully Aloy Jimenez and Michael Kopech will be with the White Sox at that moment. And if you're looking for some great deals this week against the Cleveland Indians, on Monday, tickets start at $8, Tuesday, $7, Wednesday, $9, and Thursday, $6. So SeatGeek has some great deals on White Sox-Indians tickets this week. And the best part is Sox Machine listeners, you get to save in a couple of ways. One, if you've never used SeatGeek before, download the app and enter promo code SOXMACHINE, that's promo code SOXMACHINE, to save $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. And if you have used SeatGeek before, they have a special offer for all Major League Baseball ticket purchases. Use promo code MACHINE for $10 off tickets. That's promo code MACHINE for $10 off Major League Baseball tickets. Or if you have yet to use SeatGeek, download the app or go to SeatGeek.com and use promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off on any purchase. And now we shift gears as the White Sox will face the Cleveland Indians this week. It is a Monday through Thursday series. The Cleveland Indians are 34 and 29. They are five games ahead in the American League Central. The Detroit Tigers are still in second place. What are you doing, Minnesota? Anyways, the Indians are starting to find their groove, Jim. They are 10 and 5 in their last 15 games. And your probable pitchers for this series starting on Monday. It is Lucas Giolito against Carlos Carrasco. That's a 7.10 p.m. Central time start. Tuesday, James Shields gets Adam Plutko, which the White Sox found some success in their one game in Cleveland against Plutko. On Wednesday, it is Dylan Covey against Trevor Bauer in the Battle of Ale Central Scion Contender. I'm joking. And that game started at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. And on Thursday, the afternoon game, getaway day for the Indians. It is Carlos Rodon against Mike Clevenger. Jim, last time the White Sox played the Indians, it did not go so well. Are you expecting better outcomes with the games being at home? Well, it's tough with the pitching they're rolling out. And I was looking at, you know, what the Indians have done recently. And, you know, over their last five games, they've allowed 10 runs total. So it's... Yeah, they're, when you, yeah, they're yeah, doing well. White Sox have never really fared well against Carrasco and Bowers pitching well and Clevenger pitched well against the Sox last time. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be tough. Um, the hope is that, you know, when it comes down to pitching, that, you know, they're able to, you know, keep it close enough to where the Indians' bullpen comes into play. And, uh, you know, like... As always, when we talk about probable pitchers, you know, it's about Lucas Giolito looking more like uh, his top end, which he hasn't quite reached yet. And, you know, Shields bouncing back from his start. Uh, you know, Kobe, you know, Kobe being Kobe is a weird thing to say, but it's true. And, you know, Rodon, but it's just like uh, when you look at their rotation, these pitching matchups, you're looking at, um, you know, 
the Indians being their guys and the White Sox having to be better than they've been. Although we said the same thing with Boston, you know, when they rolled out yeah. Sale and Price and uh, Porcello and the White Sox took two of three. So, you know, they are playing better. But when you look at uh, the way the Indians are pitching on paper and the way they've dominated the White Sox in the past with these pitchers, it's just hard to get excited for it, even with, you know, recent results being better. I mean, yeah, obviously the key, get whatever you can against the Indians starting pitching, but take advantage of the Indians' bullpen. They got to address that soon. That bullpen yeah. is horrible. That is a bullpen yeah. that is not going to help you in the playoffs. League's worst DRA there. And got to limit the damage from Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor. Those two guys, yep. do not let them get started, or it will be a long four games. Because Lindor and Ramirez, again, are two of the top four players in the American League in terms of wins above replacement. Yeah, they're not scoring a ton of runs. You know, like last you know, they're they've won four to five, but they you know scored three, three, four, two, nine. So, you know, it's not like they're 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 posting big numbers on a daily basis. It's just the starting pitching is really really good. And the White Sox avoid Corey Kluber, who hasn't walked anyone in a month. Yeah. Yep. He's going to win another Cy Young award. And that's we're on pace for him to win his third Cy Young uh, if he continues to pitch like this. So, I don't know. We'll see. I think the White Sox could win at least one game. If they could split it, that would be phenomenal heading into the weekend series against Detroit and keep the pace up. And I would still be hopeful, Jim, that they could finish 500 in June. I'd still have my fingers crossed for that. Next topic we're going to talk about, because our good friend Jim Callis of MajorLeagueBaseball.com, he'll be joining us shortly to recap the 2018 Major League Baseball draft for the Chicago White Sox. But before we speak with Jim Callis, Jim, just wanted to get your thoughts about how the White Sox drafted earlier this week. Well, you know, we, we talked about it before, you know, leading up to the draft, you know, who we'd like to see picked based on who the front runners were. And, and we both liked Madrigal and uh, so can't complain there. But uh, I, I like that they picked two high schoolers in the, in the top 10 picks. I like the Pilkington pick at, at three. I think that's the kind of you know, left-handed college pitcher the White Sox could use in their ranks and, and you know, potentially can rise faster uh, than his stuff has looked this year. Uh, I guess the one that's going to kind of, I, I guess, tilt the draft for me one way or another is Steel Walker. Um, I'm not exactly sure what to think of him, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about him based on you know his profile and what he showed at Oklahoma. Steel Walker, I think, is going to be a professional hitter long-term left fielder, not a very strong arm, athletic enough to have average range in left field and be able to make catches. He was the best hitter for Team USA. And what that means is that he batted 333 and slugged over 500 with wood bats. So while everybody was concerned about Seth Beer last summer, everybody was really surprised by Steel Walker and Travis Swaggerty. Travis Swaggerty was selected 10th overall. Why? Because he's a much better defender than Steel Walker. I'm surprised that Steel Walker fell to the White Sox at 46. I thought that Walker would have went in the first 35 picks and would have gone in the first round. And I think a big part of that is people, teams must have been worried about the defense because I think the bat will play. And I, I think that this is a guy that can hit 15 to 20 home runs easily in a year, maybe even more than 20 home runs uh, in a season. And I think he's going to be one of those players like Luis Gonzalez, Jim, that we're seeing in Kannapolis right now that just dominates rookie ball and dominates a ball in Kannapolis and is very effective in Winston-Salem. Just like any other prospect, Jim, though, it's all about Birmingham. 
When when yeah. when Walker gets to Birmingham in a couple of years, what type of hitter is he going to be? If he's hitting over three hundred in Birmingham, then he may lift above this outfield logjam. But everything that he's done leading up to this point suggests that I think he's going to be pretty successful for the White Sox in the lower levels. And he's definitely someone to keep an eye on, especially offensively. Cool. Well, <laughs> answers that. Well, I, I want to say uh, to that point is that uh, thanks for all your draft coverage this year. Uh, oh, thank well, you. It's because, uh, I mean, the draft is something when it comes to the prospects and such, I don't really pay attention to until the last month just because you have a lot of other things to look at. So. Uh, when it comes to your, you know, your attention to it and your write-ups and everything, it definitely, you know, allows me to catch up quickly and makes me smarter. So, uh, thanks for your good work this draft season. Thank you, Jim. I tried really hard and the things that I learned, cause this is my first time really diving this deep into the draft is I'm getting a better understanding of what the White Sox like. And I know that for some fans, if you have draft fatigue and if you do not want to hear about the 2019 Major League Baseball draft, I totally understand because I could use a break covering it as well. But at the end of this month in June, Team USA on the collegiate level starts play. The White Sox first three rounds, Jim, Pinkleton, Walker and Madrigal were all on Team USA. And I think you just have to pay attention to the guys that are playing for Team USA this summer because I think that is a good indicator of who the White Sox are really going to be heavy on going into next collegiate season. But I do find it fascinating that they spent their fourth round pick on a high schooler and they spent a seventh rounder on a high schooler and 11th rounder on a high schooler. I think that is a good sign that the White Sox are start are willing to take risk in the major league baseball draft on kids that are raw, but they have high ceilings And this isn't a first-round situation, right? This is not a Courtney Hawkins. This is a guy that you could dream on, and you're not investing a lot of money, and there's other bigger names in this class that we're going to be paying attention to. And if they could develop into something better, great. That is a great lottery ticket to get. And I think that's just a smarter way of the White Sox drafting. I was really happy with the White Sox draft strategy this year compared to last year where – I'm still really concerned about the 2017 draft just because you drafted a third baseman that blew his Achilles twice this year. Yeah. And Gavin Sheets is slugging 380. Come on, man. Like, yep. Got to get more. Got to get more. But it'll be interesting to see how these guys uh, do in either Great Falls, Canapolis, or in Magical's case, uh, straight to Winston-Salem. I find that to be aggressive, but it'll be fun. It'll be fun. And I'll be doing the same for the 2019 draft because it looks like the White Sox are going to have a top five pick. And uh, you bet. I already took film from the Super Regionals of some of the top guys we're going to be hearing about next year, but that will come out in February. So thank you to everyone that read and I hopefully uh, others share the same sentiment with Jim as far as the draft coverage and better reason to also help support us on Patreon because our Patreon supporters got a lot more from the draft this year uh, than the folks that just came to visit SoxMachine.com. So speaking about the Major League Baseball draft, great time to bring in Jim Callis, who will be joining us next on the Sox Machine podcast to share his thoughts about the White Sox draft. Before we speak with Jim Callis, a quick word from our sponsor, RX Bar. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean? Our bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. We want to be transparent and upfront with our customers, which is why we label the core ingredients like egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of the package and the ingredients that make up texture and taste on the back. 
Beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX bars actually taste delicious. My favorite RX bar flavors are blueberry, as it's great for breakfast on the go. And when I have my sweet tooth in the afternoon, I love going to grab a chocolate sea salt RX bar. As RX bars are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, there's no added sugar and no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. And they use egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and that egg white protein stands out as a source of protein that's easy for your body to absorb. RX bars come in 11 delicious flavors, and as of May 14th, there are three new flavors, mango pineapple, peanut butter and berries, and chocolate hazelnut. And what's also cool, starting in late May, RX bar introduces RX nut butter, made with the same core ingredients as the protein bars. The new nut butters include a base of nuts, peanuts or almonds, egg whites and dates, and flavors include honey, cinnamon, peanut butter, peanut butter, and vanilla almond butter. Best part, Socks Machine listeners get to save 25% off your first order. All you have to do is visit rxbar.com slash socks and enter promo code SOCKS at checkout. Again, for 25% off, go to rxbar.com slash socks and enter promo code SOCKS. And in addition, for a limited time, every order will receive free samples. Free sample offer ends on June 30th. So you got a couple of weeks to take advantage of this offer. Again, go to rxbar.com slash socks, enter promo code SOCKS at checkout to receive free samples by June 30th for RX Bar. The big event this past week was the Major League Baseball draft in which the Chicago White Sox took Nick Madrigal over Brady Sinner and also added Steel Walker, outfielder from Oklahoma in the second round, and starting pitcher Connor Pinkleton from Mississippi State in the third round. They also picked two high school shortstops this year in the first 11 rounds with Lency Delgado in the fourth round and Kelvin Maldonado in the 11th round. Plus pitching, lots of college pitching in the mid-rounds for the White Sox. So how does this White Sox draft grade overall? Well, join us as, a, as our good friend of the podcast. He's senior writer of MLBPipeline.com, and you saw him plenty this past week on MLB Network. It's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. I know you've been quite busy this week, so thank you for taking the time to join our show. Oh yeah, glad to help, Josh, uh, as always. So the White Sox take Nick Madrigal fourth overall, and I really thought it was going to be Brady Sinner, but an hour before the draft starts, you change your pick for the White Sox in your last mock, and you mocked Magical to the White Sox. So was it something that you heard, or did you have a different feeling on what the White Sox were ultimately going to do? Um, it, it was something I heard. You know, that, that it's funny that Monday is always like a weird day because, like, it's kind of like the calm before the before the storm a little bit. You know, like we been busy getting our top 200s out and doing like the draft preview show for MLB Network and we did Jonathan May and I did like a joint mock that we filed at like 1.30 in the morning on I guess Monday morning that came out that morning and then outside of like we were both I think on MLB Central like early in the morning we don't really have much to do other than to sit there and, and continue to work on our mocks and the, 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 you know, the thing is, though, it's because there's kind of gamesmanship on both the, the player side and the team side. Things don't get locked up. Like, I think 20 minutes before the draft began, Casey Mize wasn't officially locked up. They were – you're not supposed to do this, but everybody does. I mean, I think the Tigers are trying to figure out exactly what it was going to cost them to sign Casey Mize. So, anyway – we sit. We spend the whole day texting people, and and kind of you know we we have until about 5:30 is when we can file our, our what we call our final names only mock. And I, I'd say about an hour before that started to hear that um 
that Madrigal was going to go four. I'm, I'm still, I'm still kicking myself, Josh. It's like you, you get information, you don't know what to go with, and like I knew the Mets at six were backing off of Brady Singer. Like we thought it was going to be college guys' first six picks. And I knew they preferred Kelnick, but with some of that gamesmanship going on, like Kelnick wasn't returning the Mets' phone calls, and I should have just known that it was going to get worked out, but I didn't go with Kelnick in my mock draft. I'm kicking myself for that. <laughs> and I had somebody tell me literally at 525, not high up enough to where I was just like, oh, I'll just go with it, and it was going to have to blow my mock, that Kyler Murray was going nine. And I tried and tried and tried for five minutes frantically to try to get, like, a second person, and I didn't pull the trigger on that. So I, I got Madrigal right. I think I got the first five picks right. But I'm, I'm kicking myself for, for, for having the pieces in front of me but not seeing them properly. Kyler Murray going number nine. What do you make of that? Um, I really thought it was very interesting because – you know, I, I do our Midwest stuff, so I had Texas when he was coming out of high school three years ago, and I've got Oklahoma today, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about Steel Walker in a little bit. Um, and three years ago, he was an easy first-round pick. If he was signable, would have gotten at least $3 million. But, I mean, Kyler Murray is one of the all-time legendary high school quarterbacks in Texas, and he really wanted to play football, and he took himself out of the draft. So you fast-forward, and, and you know, he went to A&M as a freshman, Started a little bit at quarterback, but wound up leaving, had to sit out last year's transfer to Oklahoma, and then played a little bit this year backing up Baker Mayfield, and they kind of used him in some different positions to get his speed on the field. But essentially, he's waited three years to play quarterback, and it looks like he's going to take over for Baker Mayfield and what might be the most fun offense to run in college football. And so a month ago, talking to people about Kyler Murray, everybody said, look, love the guy, easy first-round pick, but... Like, I just don't think he's going to give up football, you know, after waiting three years to play. And apparently, as the draft got very close, Kyler Murray was telling people, look, I'm not going to give up playing football this fall. I've been waiting three years to do this. But, you know, if the offer makes sense, I'll I'll agree to give up football after I play my junior season. Because he's not, he's not a real big guy. I don't even know if he'd, he'd be one of those quarterbacks who moved to slot receiver in the NFL. He's fast, but he's kind of smallish. And I think he knew his future was in baseball. So um, that kind of came out. And then there were all these rumors about various teams trying to go get him. Um, I, I thought the rumors we were hearing right before the draft, like the day or two before, was the Reds at five and the Padres at seven, maybe discounting a guy with their first pick to spend money on Kyler Murray with their second pick. And, and they went out and just took him at nine. And it's, he's, he's really, really interesting because a couple of good things about him compared to your typical football baseball guy is he's going to have football out of his system. This isn't signing the guy out of high school and you worry if he struggles that he might say, you know what, I'm going to go play college football because that's more appealing. And two, you know, he didn't. He basically didn't play for two years. He played a little bit last year, and he was really rusty and not very good. And the amount of improvement he showed this year, after, you know, not really playing for two years, is very encouraging about what he might be able to do if he focuses on baseball full time. So, um, it's I, I, I'm still kicking myself because I could have uh, I could have had Kyler Murray at nine, like I. I, I'm way too competitive with my mocks. I want to try to get every pick right, and I I, sh- I, I, I got tipped off, but I didn't quite uh, I didn't quite pull the trigger on it. Nick Magical to the White Sox at number four. Do you like that pick over Brady Singer for the White Sox? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think you could go either way. And you know, we had Singer rank higher. I probably would have picked Singer. Although, I mean, if I were drafting, I would have gone Mize one, Singer two. 
Madrigal three and probably Bart four. But I think with Singer, and I don't know if this is specifically with the White Sox, I think the reason he lasted as long as he did, you know, fall away the Royals at pick 18, was, you know, the, the top pitchers in the draft, as determined by MLB, are asked to submit to an MRI program. And, you know, basically, if you, if you don't, there's different repercussions than if you do, if you wind up failing your physical after the draft. And Singer chose not to do the MRI program. And in his case, and again, I don't know if this is true with the White Sox, but it, it spooks some teams because he failed a physical out of high school. Now, he failed that physical as a second-round pick of the Blue Jays, and the Blue Jays back then were failing people left and right and using it. So I, I know, again, I'm not a doctor. I haven't seen all the medical records. I, I know there were multiple agents who felt that the Blue Jays were trying to use that as a negotiating tactic. Like, hey, you failed our physical. Hey, we'll offer you a reduced bonus. And you know, Singer on his side got, I think, a second and third opinion that did not have nearly the same concerns about his shoulder that the the Blue Jays had. But anyway, you know, you so you have a guy who who you know the, the team doctor has the final say, and if you you pass or fail your physical, who officially you know from the Blue Jays' perspective failed his physical as a second round pick three years ago, and I just think there you know teams got a little spooked about him not doing a new MRI. I mean, whether it's right or wrong, I think some teams worry like, oh, you know, is there something going on? Is he, is he hiding something? What's the deal? So, right. I, you know, and again, I don't know that that's what happened to White Sox, but that's what happened to Singer. But, I mean, I don't think you can go wrong with Madrigal. I thought he was the the best hitter in the draft. I, I think he's probably got the highest floor in the draft because I, like, I, I don't see how this guy wouldn't at least be an average big league regular second base. Like, I, I'd be shocked if that didn't happen. And I think he'll be better than that. I mean, I think this guy can really hit – He's a, he's at least a plus runner. I'm a little less certain he can play shortstop, and then you know, I'm sure the White Sox will give him every opportunity to. Um, but you know, I, I don't know if the arm is quite big enough over there. But I think he can play a good second base, and and I didn't mind it. And yeah, as you know, because you, I mean, I think we've talked about this a bunch. I, I don't think you draft for need. I think you take the guy you think is the best player, and I think they thought Nick Madrigal was the best player. And you know what that means when he's ready. And uh, Yohan Mankata, you know, is at second base, or you know, they'll figure that out. Or Tim Anderson's a shortstop, they'll figure, they'll figure that out. Um, so I, I, that part didn't bother me at all. So no, I, I like the pick. I, I thought they got the best hitter in the draft at number four. A common question that we've been getting is, where will Magical fit in the White Sox top prospect list, and where will he be in the top 100? And I'm assuming that it's way too early to know. But before you get into the nitty-gritty, do you, do you think that Madrigal is on the level of a Zach Collins as far as quality player that the White oh, Sox? Oh, he's better. I, I, think, I think he's better than Zach Collins. Um, I know Zach Collins is having a good year. I, I think he's better than Zach Collins because I, I know I'm a little lighter on Zach Collins than most. Um, but, I mean, Nick Madrigal is definitely going to play up the middle. Um and I, I'm not convinced that Zach Collins is necessarily. Like I, I, I think he could be a catcher, and I think he might not be a catcher. And and so I factor that I, I would take Nick Madrigal over Zach Collins, like without hesitation. And and that might be stronger than say the White Sox would put it. But personally, I'm taking Nick Madrigal every day if those are my two choices. Okay, so is he still behind then? Of course, of Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to be ahead. Uh, you know, I mean, we'll have Jimenez and Kopech. I mean, the, the interesting one would be Robber because I, I really like Luis Robber. I almost feel like we were really aggressive with, with Luis Robber, like where we put him on the top 100. I mean, he's we, 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 we jacked him up pretty good, and we've kept him there. He's at 24, 
And I don't know if I really feel like Elise Roberts is the 24th best prize. I mean, he might be. Um, you know, I guess with him versus Robert, you know, in, in, we'll, we'll, we'll update the list. So, I mean, if Robert stays in the same spot, no, Nick Madrigal is not going to rank in the top 25 prospects on our list, so he'd probably rank behind. I, I think you could argue him versus Robert. It's just, you know, what you want to go with, you know, do you want to go with a high ceiling and a higher floor, or do you want to go with the higher ceiling and Robert? I, I think you could argue that one either way. I, I think Nick Madrigal is really, really good. Well, that's good to hear. I think White Sox fans will take that answer and be very happy about that, that the they have added a talent like Nick Madrigal into the system. With the second and third round picks, before the year began, Jim, I thought Steel Walker and Connor Pinkleton had opportunities to be drafted in the first round. And I thought Steel Walker still had an opportunity to be selected late in the first round, maybe to like the Indians or the Dodgers. Pinkleton obviously did not have a very good May, just seemed that he ran out of gas. And his super regional start against Vanderbilt this past weekend, uh, he looked much better than he has in the past month. So I understand how Pinkleton fell to the third round to the White Sox. But I'm still a bit surprised that Walker fell to the White Sox to pick 46. Are you surprised? And what type of player are the White Sox getting from Steel Walker? Yeah, I, I was surprised too because what you said, I, I thought he had a chance to go somewhere in, in like the you know like twenty five to thirty five at the end of the first round. I thought that was very possible. And if you just look at the profile, I mean, teams always want college position players. Like there never seem to be enough college position players. And you know, Steel Walker. I mean, all the things that your analytically minded teams are going to look for, you know, like can really hit, can really control the strike zone. I mean, Stu Walker does all that. So I, I just would have thought he would have appealed to one of those teams. I, I am surprised that, that he got all the way, you know, down to the White Sox in the second round. I, I thought he was, you know, arguably, you know, after Madrigal, he might be the second best. I mean, I thought Madrigal was the best hitter in the draft. And then among college players, Stu Walker might have been the second best guy. Behind behind Madrigal, I mean the same things you could say: hand-eye coordination, pitch recognition, good approach. Um, it's really good. I mean, I think the knock on Steel Walker is okay. You know what else is above average besides the bat? Um, and I don't know if 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 there is a, a true above-average tool besides the bat, but I think he's gonna have at least average power. It's kind of average run. You know, the arm's not great, but like. He, he he plays quicker than, than his speed. Um, I think his hitting ability is going to let him get into all his power. Um, I think you know he, you know, we talked about Kyler Murray earlier. You know Murray plays center, and so Walker plays right. I, I think Walker will at least get some exposure to center. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I thought he was a tremendous value to get him a two. And then you know Pilkington, you're exactly right. I, I thought he had a chance to be a first rounder coming into the year. I mean, his track record's been pretty good. Didn't have a great May. You know, I, I had somebody tell me he got offline to the plate, um, and it kind of cost him, you know, like life and command. And you know, his velocity was down a little bit this year. But I mean, he's been up to 96 in the past. You know, more 88, 91, top in 93 this year. Um, change up is better than a slider. And it seems like like the vast majority of guys we talked about on the two days of the draft had better change up some breaking balls. So I don't know what's up with that. Um, but, um, you know, he, he's got a good frame. He throws strikes. You know, I think he's a little bit more of a floor than a ceiling guy for me. Like, I, I don't see this guy pitching, like, in the front of a rotation, but I could see him pitching in the middle of rotation. And I think he's. I think he's. I just think he had. He was down a little bit this year. His delivery got a little out of sync. But I think he's a guy with a 
with a really nice feeling, uh, and I thought that was a nice value in the third round as well. I mean, if, I, if I'm the White Sox, I mean, look, you knew you were getting a good guy at four. You know, you maybe not didn't know who it was going to be, but you knew it was going to be a good guy at, at four. Um, but, I, I mean, to get Stillwalker, uh, you know, even going in on draft day, I don't think you would have thought you were getting Stillwalker there. And then coming into the year, if you told those guys, you know, Nick Hosteller and company, hey, you can have Connor Pilkington in the third round. You know, you want to take that? It's January before we even play the season. You know, we'll, we'll tell you to be healthy, but you don't know anything else. I think, yeah, they'd say, yeah, we'll take Connor Pilkington in the third round. So I, I thought it was a really good start to the draft for them. And then, you know, for the rest of the draft, they finally took some high schoolers. I mentioned as far as the two high school shortstops, they also added Cabrera Weaver from South Gunnett High School, outfielder from Georgia. Uh, everything we've heard about him is that he can run like the wind. Uh, so the White Sox are adding more high school depth, which is a good sign because I think for fans, we're really concerned as far as the log jam that's happening right now in Winston-Salem, preventing players from Kannapolis being promoted. And why the White Sox are not promoting players from Winston-Salem to Birmingham, nobody knows. But one thing that I did notice is that a lot of teams were really zeroing in on college pitchers that are probably going to be relievers that throw 94 miles plus. The White Sox took Jonathan Stever from the University of Indiana in the fifth round. They took Isaiah Carranza from uh, a D2 school. And they also took from University of Illinois, Luke Schilling. Is this going to be a new trend in the Major League Baseball draft, Jim? That when we get to the mid, let's say the fifth round to the 15th round, Major League Baseball teams are going to adjust because relievers today get paid a lot of money in free agency that let's start loading the system with guys that, sure, they may not have the track record in college, but we know they can throw 95. Um, well, first about the high schoolers, you know, Delgado's an interesting guy. Um, I think he profiles more as a third baseman, but kind of has that third base offensive profile. He's 6'3", 210. He's really interesting. Cabrera Weaver can really run. I do Georgia. The guys I talked to weren't real bullish on the bat. Like he can run and he can run um, and he can run. That's what he can do. So we'll see. Um, yeah, he, we'll see on him. I mean, I, I would assume if you're taking him the seventh round, he'll sign. Um, but, you know, he'll get, you know, fastest player in everybody's White Sox draft report card. But, like, I'm, the jury's out on his bat. With the pitchers, I don't really think that's new. I think guys, you know, college guys who throw 94-95 are always going to get drafted, regardless of what the role is. I mean, Stever to me, Stever's a starter. Like, you know, he might touch a 94 or a 95, but you're not drafting Stever to to light up a radar gun. You know, they got him in the fourth round. I mean, this is a guy who, who's got solid control of three pitches, and he's not real big, but he's athletic. I, I think that guy's a starter. All the way. So I just think he was, you know, you're taking a starter in the fourth round, or fifth round. I guess Delgado was a fourth rounder. Yeah, Cody Hoyer in the sixth round was a starter in college, and he's up to 96, but he's, he's, he's going to be a reliever. Like, his, his arm action, his, his, his control's not sharp necessarily, so I think he's a reliever. Um, you know, Carranza, you know, I think Carranza might get a shot as a starter, too. Um, you know, he throws hard. You know, I mean, he's got to throw more strikes, but but I think he gets tried as a starter. I mean, Jason Billowis is the guy who, you know, Coastal Carolina has tried to have make a starter, and he's just never thrown strikes, but he's up to 99 with a with a really hard slider. Um, I, I'll tell you what I liked about their draft, too, Josh. I, I thought, now look, I mean, you know, day three is, is the least important of the three days, obviously, but 
I thought they came out in the 12th, 13th, or 14th round. I'm going to assume, yeah, you know, not everybody signed. You know, everybody in the first 10 rounds pretty much signs, and that's not necessarily true in the, you know, after the 10th. But I do think that the first, you know, like 11 through 15, the vast majority of those guys signed too. I mean, you know, you've done your homework. You're not just taking wild flyers on guys. And they came out, and they got three guys in our top 200 in Carranza and Billis and Davis Martin at Texas Tech who – who could have gone higher, and, and he, he didn't have as great a year this year. But, I mean, that, that guy can show you four pitches and, and throw strikes, too. I, I thought they did a really nice job on day three. We did not. Somebody asked me, like, who I thought had the best day on day three, and I was like, come on. Like, I've, I've written 8,000 stories. I did not break down picks 11 through 40 and try to gauge signability for every team. But, like, I know when that was happening, um, and we were just kind of – on day three, we're kind of filling in, you know, dead space if if, if the call goes down for a minute or something. Uh uh, you know, I, I was really impressed. I was like, when they came out and got those guys, I was like, wow. You know, like, you, as you could tell, I mean, I really like the top of their draft. And, and then to come out, you know, assuming they sign Carranza and Billis and Davis Martin in rounds 12, 13, and 14, that's pretty interesting draft. So, I, I, I you know, I mean, and look, I, I say this every year. I mean, look, you know, we don't know how good these guys are going to be. We just know what we thought of them going into the draft. But, but based on what we thought of guys, um, I thought the White Sox did very, very well, um, you know, both at the top of the draft and then coming out strong in day three, too. Yeah, the White Sox overall took seven of MLB Pipeline's top 200 prospects in this Major League Baseball draft. So moving on from the White Sox, obviously for White Sox fans with this rebuild, we're always keeping an eye on the American League Central rivals. The Indians and Royals both had multiple picks. And both of those teams couldn't go in more opposite directions. The Royals stacked up on college starting pitching. They took Florida's Friday and Saturday night starters in Brady Sinner and Jackson Kowar. Jackson Kowar pitched very well in Game 2 of the Super Regional for Florida. And Cleveland stacked up on high schoolers. And obviously, it's totally different strategies. Um, but with the Royals, you know, a lot of people were talking about the Royals before this draft because they did have a lot of draft picks, letting Lorenzo Cain and Eric Hosmer go. Were you shocked that they went in that direction, loading up on college starting pitching? I'm not shocked. Um, I mean, it's a departure for what they've done in the past, but maybe it's a good departure. I mean, they've spent a lot of high picks on, on high school pitchers. You know, a couple of years ago, they took two first-round picks out of out of uh, Indiana, and Ash Russell and Noel Watson. And Ash Russell is not even in baseball right now, and, and Noel Watson has really struggled, and they struggled to develop some of the other high school pitchers they've taken too. So, um, you know, their system has really thinned out. You know, obviously they were all in for a couple of years, and they won two pennants and one World Series, and you know they traded away some of their prospects to you guys like Sean Mania to to add players to to their system. Uh, I mean, to add players to Big League Club, but their system's thin, and so I, I kind of looked at it that you know this is a team that hasn't been afraid to go. You know, they, like they weren't afraid all, all the draft high school pitching in the past, but I think they're just trying to get some talent into their system that they can kind of start pushing through the pipeline fairly quickly. So that was my impression. Uh, of of why they did what they did. I mean, to me, you know, Singer and Coar were pretty much you know no brainers where they picked based on you know just based on the fact that they happened to be there. But then you know they went Daniel Lynch, Chris Bubik, Jonathan Bolin, and you know there's three more college starting pitchers, and and they went heavy college. I don't think they took a high school guy to the ninth round. And, and Kevon Jackson from Arizona is like a sprint champion. I mean, he's very uh, you know unrefined as a baseball player. So. That that wasn't surprising, and then you know Cleveland I mean, is a team that's gone heavy college a lot in the past, although not as much. I mean, they took Will Benson and Nolan Jones a couple of years, but I mean, they, you think of them more team that takes college guys, and they went 
high school, high school, high school with, with Noah Naylor, who's one of the best all-around high school hitters in the draft. Uh, Ethan Hankins, who, who had a chance to go near the top of the draft, but he had a muscular issue behind his shoulder. And then uh, Lenny Torres, a hard-throwing right-hander out of New York. So, I mean, it looked to me like, you know, obviously Kansas City was targeting some college players too, but at least with those early picks, I just think both teams kind of took whoever was at the top of the board when the pick came up. And finally, because right now the White Sox are pacing to be right around where they were this year, having a top five pick with how they've been playing. Looking at the 2019 Major League Baseball draft, obviously there are some fans that have draft fatigue. The draft is over. Why are we looking ahead? <laughs> uh, but next week is a major Your high school fan, showcase. If you're a White Sox fan, you have to look ahead. You, you don't want to look at the present right now. <laughs> well, they well this past week's been fun, but you're right. I mean, when you're 19 games below 500 rooting for that team, yeah, it's it's not fun overall. Uh, but like I mentioned, there's a major high school showcase. Uh, there's going to be another major sh- high school showcase at Wrigley Field. Uh, I think it's sometime in July. Team USA starts for the collegiate level later in June. And then you have the Cape Cod League and the Midwest League starting. So, yeah, this is about right about that time where prospects start hitting on everybody's radar. And the very maybe too early look uh, as we have seen some mock drafts, at least for the first top 10 picks. Uh, who are some players that you believe are going to be on those on a draft radar for scouting directors looking ahead that could possibly be in the top 10 next year? I think the two uh, most obvious guys right now are Bobby Witt Jr., the son of the former pitcher. He's a shortstop, high school shortstop from Texas. You know, potential five-tool ability. Uh uh, he, I mean, I think if he was in this year's draft, he would have been a potential number one overall pick. Although they, they probably take, you know, I think the Tigers probably still take Casey Mize just because he's a college pitcher with stuff and polish. But Bobby Wood Jr. is your favorite to go number one um, right now, a strong favorite. I mean, as strong as you could be this far in advance. And then I think like his biggest challenger would be Adley Richmond from from Oregon State, catcher. Um, last I checked, he was hitting like 380, switch hitter. Um, you know, power's starting to come, but that that always takes back seat to his defense because he's a he's a good receiver with a plus plus arm. You're kind of comparing him to Joey Bart, who who went number two overall the Giants this year. Bart's got more power. Rutschman's probably a, a better hitter and, and a better defender. Um, so I think those are your top two guys for right now. And and that Under Armour game, I was actually looking at that today because I usually broadcast it. Um, I think it's scheduled for a Friday this year. Um, I'm going to assume that's a Friday evening, but it's July 20th is the um, is the day of the Under Armour game at Wrigley this year. And I hope to be in attendance because, again, as you said, Jim, have to look ahead. <laughs> Maybe not look at the present. <laughs> We're in the most recent past for White Sox fans. But uh, before you know it, February will come around. The college season will start it. High school season will start, and we'll be right back here again talking about the 2019 Major League Baseball draft and hoping that the White Sox add another potential superstar into the pipeline. He is Jim Callis. You can always read his excellent work on MLBpipeline.com and watch him on television on MLB Network. And you could also follow him on Twitter. He's at Jim Callis MLB. And as always, Jim, greatly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show, and I still hope that you're making it out to the College World Series to see future Chicago White Sox player Nick Madrigal play. Yeah, I, I will be out there. Just it's like I get some family stuff going on, so just uh, just for the final series. Um, uh, the way Oregon State's bracket is shaping up, like I mean, they're going to be the favorite, I think, to advance to the finals uh, out of their bracket. So I suspect uh, I will probably see Nick Madrigal. I usually try to make it out for the. 
the final four, uh, like on the mm-hmm. Friday, but like have to go out a little bit later. But you know me, I will not miss the College World Series unless I have to. And I think I'm doing the math quickly in my head. I think this will be my 30th College World Series I've attended <laughs> That's awesome. in my 50 years on this planet, which is pretty good considering I did not go to the College World Series until I was 19 years old. So That's awesome. Well, enjoy the whiskey steak, sir. And thank uh, you again for coming will. on the show. Have you been ever been out there, Josh? Have you ever been out to College World Series? I have not. It is on my bucket list, and I keep telling myself next year I will be there. So hopefully, yeah, so. I, I, I cannot endorse that. If that 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 is my favorite event, still after all these years. I mean, not only is the baseball good, you're going to see guys who are who are going to wind up being future major league stars, and I just love the city to do. Um, you, you you can't get enough whiskey steaks at the Drover. Uh, and even you know, when my kids were young, I mean, they have a great zoo. There's all kinds of stuff to do. Even the 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 less diehard baseball fans among my kids love going to Omaha. So I, I cannot endorse Omaha enough. That it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful event. Well, Jim, thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem, Josh. I always enjoy talking to you. Welcome to the Minor League Report. Let's start with a Luis Robert update down in Kannapolis, because most of the White Sox farm system remains unchanged. Robert played in six games this week, going 7-for-23 with two doubles, a walk, and six strikeouts over 25 plate appearances. That's good for a 304 average, a 360 on base percentage, and a 391 slugging percentage, all of which are encouraging for a first stateside week. He still appears to be getting up to speed, including in the literal speed department, as he's 1-for-3 stealing bases. All in all, though, I'd consider it a successful first week in the books. Otherwise, as the affiliates enter the last full week of the first half, the focus seems to be on shoring up A-ball championships. The Winston-Salem Dash are one and a half games up on Bowie's Creek atop the Carolina League Southern Division, and Kannapolis is in first place by two games over Lakewood in the Sally League's Northern Division. While minor league postseason appearances are not front of mind for a lot of fans, there are some benefits. The affiliates themselves get extra games and a chance to hoist a pennant, and the players get extra reps and a sense of games with stakes. A team doesn't need to win in the minors to put together a rebuild. The Atlanta Braves, for instance, had the second-worst organizational record in baseball to the White Sox last year, yet they're tied atop the NL East right now. But in 2015, the Astros had all of their full-season affiliates reach the postseason, and they considered themselves richer for the experience. Long story short, if the chance for a postseason spot is there, they may as well take it. It just leads to a sense of sameness while waiting for the first halves to finish. The summaries at each of the full-season affiliates for the White Sox are basically the same as last week. For example, in Charlotte, Michael Kopech's stuff is still evident, but the walks are a little high. For Carson Fulmer, the walks are a lot high, especially since he doesn't have Kopech's stuff. The Barons are sending Eloy Jimenez, Zach Collins, Sebi Zavala, Danny Mendick, and Ian Hamilton to the Southern League All-Star Game because they've all been performing well for most of the season. If you want a new development, though, Spencer Adams has tossed three strong starts in a row. Likewise, in A-ball, the outfielders in Winston-Salem have leveled off after strong starts, and a lot of guys in Kannapolis are way too qualified for low A. Once the first half titles are locked up, hopefully we'll see some of these guys get new challenges thrown their way. There will also be draft picks getting assigned to levels and the short-season affiliates starting their seasons, so next week should start to look and sound different. That's it for the Minor League Report. Now let's answer some of your questions in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine. 
posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash SocksMachine or helping support the show and SocksMachine.com by signing up to become a friend of the podcast at patreon.com slash SocksMachine. And of course, joining me again on the show is Jim Margulis to answer your questions. And Jim, the first question comes from Sox Nation. And Sox Nation is asking you, plenty of foreign players have succeeded without mentors. Why does Yohan Mikata specifically need a mentor in Jose Abreu when he has been in the country for a few years? Well, I think when it comes to players not born stateside, I think you have to separate Cuban from the other variations of foreign born just because of the uh, just because of the differences. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of strife involved in defecting, you know, going from uh, communism to capitalism. You know, there's a huge um, you know influx of money and freedom when neither were there. Uh, and, and, you know, so you so you have all those, um, new pressures and, and, and new aspects of life and you have no contact with your family, you know, you're just, you, uh, you're cut off from, you know, your past life inheriting a brand new one. And it's just really can be overwhelming. And we, you know, we saw that before with, uh, Jose Contreras that, you know, it wasn't until Contreras was a few years into the majors and was reunited with El Duque in Chicago that he finally started coming out of his shell a little bit. And, uh, I, th- uh, I think it was before this season, uh, yeah, it was definitely before the season, I think Soxfest and, and Luis Robert and everything. And Contreras is talking about how important it is for, um, you know, somebody to help young Cuban players handle it. Uh, and we, we've seen it before with, uh, you know, Yasiel Puig and Aroldis Chapman and, um, uh, you know, where they, and you know, to a lesser degree, you want to Cespedes, just, you're having some problems handling, um, you know, I guess it's called immaturity, but it is just kind of an overwhelming, uh, life change and, and some handle it better than others. And Abreu probably, you know, it's hard to think of somebody who's handled it better than Abreu. So, you know, when he's there, it's a, it's a valuable source of somebody who handled the jump the right way. And Abreu, especially since he had legal problems with the smuggling case, you know, that brought him stateside, he had to testify in a trial. I, I, I know that, uh, you know, Contreras had other, you know, legal issues with the divorce and everything. So, I mean, there's a lot to handle for Cuban players versus, you know, players born elsewhere that don't have the whole defection thing that, uh, that uh, they need to do in order to get to the States. So um, when, it, when it comes to, you know, say the mentorship, I, I think if the White Sox didn't have a Abreu and they're trying to go out of their way to acquire somebody like Abreu, then you maybe you could say that, they're forcing a little bit and you don't need that. But I think when Abreu is already here and already part of the fabric of the team and, you know, he's there for Moncada and playing next to him, then I think it becomes, I guess, something you don't take for granted. And so I think when you're, you're thinking about trading Abreu or you're hearing discussions about trading Abreu or extending him or his future, I think, you know, it's not something the White Sox take lightly because I, lightly because they have lucked into it. And I think it is, uh, it, it is pretty helpful, you know, all in all. So, um, yeah, I don't, I guess I really don't think a whole lot about trading a Bray and, and we got a couple other questions about, you know, what a Bray can bring back into trade. And I found it interesting how bold Scott Merkin is in calling a Bray a, a fixture of the team that he will be on the next White Sox contending team and they will extend them. Usually, uh, Merkin doesn't go that, um, you know, he doesn't, he's not a hot take guy. He's not a scoop guy. Um, you know, it doesn't go that bold usually just kind of a, a nuts and bolts reporter, but in this case, he's very adamant that Abreu is going to be here. So when you see that happening and you, and you don't hear much in the way of Abreu rumors, you know, even though, as we know, circumstances 
uh, kind of paint a picture of you know the possibility of Abreu being traded. Um, I just don't give it much thought, just because I, I don't think I think he's uh, uh, pretty vital to the White Sox plans and and not something they want to I guess jeopardize. Uh, you know, having that instability where they you know <laughs> where they're lucky to have such uh, a grounded person uh, as these Cuban prospects are coming into the majors. Jose Abreu could be quite useful to Yohan Mikata, who seems to be pressing at the moment as he's going through a bit of a slump as of late. Yeah. But it does, it does help to have somebody that you trust, a friend in the clubhouse that you can go to and lean on, someone that's been as successful as Jose Abreu. So I, I understand because, as you mentioned, Jim, if Jose Abreu is only on the White Sox to be a mentor for Yohan Mikata, then move Jose Abreu, but... I do think that that relationship is pretty special and it's just not for you on It's also for the other Spanish speaking players as well. And you know, if you, Jose Abreu is going to start hitting 60 doubles a year, uh, <laughs> you think you got to keep that player. Yeah. Uh, especially and, on that team. Yeah. And, and you know, when you talk about extending them and we've talked about this before that um, I, I still don't think first baseman getting paid, uh, you know, 10 plus million dollars a year are going to get all that much back. So uh, when it comes to trading a Brayu for a guy who, best case scenario, can be as close to as good as a Brayu three or four years from now, I just don't see the impetus to deal him. Our next question comes from Dom Corianta, and Dom is asking, went to Fenway for the weekend series with my dad and brother, and we had a blast. Any tips for cool stadium cities for a road trip next year? Yeah, Fenway is great. Uh, um, yeah. It- I kind of alternate between Fenway and New York for my you know, East Coast road trip. You know, it's basically three hours in either direction to get to the stadium. So, you know, based on the way the schedule breaks down. But yeah, I love going to Fenway. I wouldn't want it as my home park because it is crowded and expensive. Um, you know, the seats are cramped and some have bad angles. So it's not a very comfortable home park. Uh, but it is a it is an experience to go there and I'd recommend it. But, um, you know, when you think about um, trips and, and, and I guess arranging a trip, to a city, I do like hanging a, you know, a city you might not go to. I like going to a Sox game there just because it gives me a reason to go there. And, and then I'm pleasantly surprised by the city I find. And, you know, I would say cities along those lines, Kansas City is one of them. Um, I went to school in Missouri, so Kansas City was two two hours away from Columbia in the center of the state. So, yeah, I'd probably end up going there anyway. But the Sox game is the reason I went there. And every time I've gone back to Kansas City, I like something else. Uh, that I'd never seen before. So I'd recommend going to Kansas City if you've never been. Kauffman's a great stadium, and uh, there's a lot to see around it that you might not have known about. Uh, I would say um, Pittsburgh's another one where, uh, yeah, I would. before I went to Pittsburgh, I had no real reason to go there. I hadn't really thought about going there. Um, but then the Sox were playing there. It was 06 after they won the World Series. Yeah, let's go on a road trip, and it was fun. And then you get to the city, and yeah, there's a lot to see, a lot of great neighborhoods. And so love going there. And, and the Sox game got me there. Um, Denver is a great place to go just because if you like beer, <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, you can go to the park and then just go on a bar crawl afterwards or before the game. And there's a lot of uh, great eating and drinking around the park. And uh, you know, Denver and the mountains offer its own thing too. And uh, I would put the same thing for Seattle and San Diego, just being great places to go. Um, for eating and drinking and also the stadiums are really nice. So, um, those are cities I might not have gone to if say my brother wasn't living there. He's in the Navy. So he's been in both of those cities. But, uh, um, you know, when I went there for a Sox game and 
found a lot of other stuff to do besides then. So, you know, cities like New York and, and Washington and, uh, you know, that have plenty of natural attractions and, and plenty of, uh, you know, awesome museums and such. You might go there anyway, but I think for those cities I mentioned, I'd plan going there with a round of Sox game and then just, uh, you know, see what TripAdvisor says, see what Yelp says, see what, uh, you know, because there's a lot of good, uh, you know, just a lot of good experiences, a lot of cool neighborhoods. And if you have low expectations or don't really know much, uh, it's fun to show up and just uh, be surprised. Yeah, San Diego is on my list because I have a good buddy that lives in San Diego. I go every December. I love San Diego. The White Sox will face the National League West teams in 2020. So I'm hoping that the White Sox will be playing in San Diego because that will be a future road trip for me. Next year is the National League East. That does possibly put in play the new Atlanta Brave Stadium, which I haven't heard good things about. But I do have some friends that live in Atlanta, and I've never been to a Braves game. So that might be on my list, Jim, as far as heading to Atlanta next year. Have you been to Atlanta for a baseball game? I have not. Um, probably will get to one in the next couple of years, but... Uh... Yeah, I haven't been there. I do like Washington as a destination. Yeah, you know, just uh, I, I think you know, a lot of people go to Washington for other reasons. And but uh, I've always enjoyed Nationals Park. It's not a it's not a wow park. It's just kind of a cla- it's a standard modern park. But I, I like their game day experience a lot. Uh, the sight lines are good. Um, pretty easy to get there as long as the metro is running uh, like it should. And uh, yeah, I've always enjoyed going there. So if for whatever, you know one reason or another, whether it's the Smithsonian's or the ballpark, you know. If you're thinking about going to Washington, I, I would recommend it just because it's a nice park to cross off the list. And, you know, Philadelphia is one where uh, the, I went there. I'm trying to think what year I went there. Maybe it was 06, 07. I know Aguchi was playing for the White Sox at the time. I remember that. But, you know, it's it's an okay park. Um, I really don't, yeah, I haven't experienced much of Philadelphia that, that I remember. So um, I'm... I can't really recommend that one too much, but then again, that might be a park where people say, oh, Philadelphia is great. You weren't in the right places. Here's where you need to go. And I'd give another shot. So I would not rule out Philadelphia. I just can't say a whole lot about it myself. Okay. Yeah. Cause then you got Miami, which there'll sure be plenty of seats available if they play in Miami. And uh, yeah, so maybe DC or Atlanta next year for me. Yeah, for me, I, I'm basing this off the interleague schedule and what new areas I want to go to. Yeah, and the, the last time I was at the Mets or City Field, there was the Matt Albers game, which I don't think is going to happen again. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. But you got to also consider other things, like as Jim Callis brought up, Omaha for the College World Series. If you haven't been to mm-hmm. Charlotte, uh, to see Winston-Salem, Canapolis, or the Knights. That's another great possibility. I, I'll be doing that next year for the first time. And uh, what I experienced in April, Birmingham, to, to go to Birmingham and catch the Barons, especially of Dylan Cease and Luis Robert and all this talent in the Winston-Salem Dash join the Barons next year. It'll be a lot of fun to watch those guys uh, play in Birmingham. So, yeah, great suggestions, Jim. And based on the interleague schedule, I think 2019, for me, probably Atlanta because I just have friends there. And then 2020, I got my fingers crossed for San Diego. Uh, it'd be great to go out there and watch the White Sox in beautiful San Diego. Our next question comes from Jimmy Griffin. And Jimmy is asking, Jim, am I wrong to assume both Alec Hansen and Mike Rodolfo will need Tommy John this year? Should they have already done it with Hansen? 
I guess I'm not assuming one way or another. I think Adolfo might. And just because when it comes to position players, um, they seem to have a shorter recovery period. And he, he's made strides at Winston-Salem with his pitch recognition and his uh, his contact. He's cut the strikeout rate. The walk rates come up. So I think he's made the kind of progress to where if they felt like Tommy John surgery would ultimately repair him and they want to do that in late July, early August, they've got, a, they've got enough out of the season um, to make it happen and fit in the timetable and not throw him off too much. With Hanson, um, yeah, I would never recommend uh, proactive Tommy John surgery or like Tommy John surgery to get ahead of, um, you know, potential surgery just because, you know, it's it's surgery. Uh, you always want to avoid it. And I think with Tommy John, you know, um, you know, the recovery rates for one are pretty good. But then if you need a second one, <laughs> then, you know, it's a, it's a lot uh, more arduous of a climb. Uh, and, and some guys never come back from a second one. So you want to avoid the first one if at all possible. And, you know, it's been weird with Hanson. Um, you know, they, they minimized it at first and they said he dealt with a similar issue at Oklahoma. And so maybe that is the case. I think with, with Hanson, you know, because he ran out of time before extended spring training, um, you know, uh, that season ended. Robert was able to get a few games in and then he went to Kannapolis. Uh, Hanson wasn't able to get there. I, I think I want to see what happens when the Arizona Rookie League season starts. If Hanson's not a part of that early on, then I would really start thinking of a more, I guess, severe case or or maybe, you know, surgical uh, action would be required. But for the time being, I guess, um, yeah, I'd wait for the Rookie League to start there and uh, hopefully he's a part of it. But yeah, I think I... I I just, uh, you know, having read uh, the Jeff Passan book about the arm and seeing just how many guys are going through second surgeries and third surgeries, uh, I think you just want to avoid the first one, if at all possible, just because it's a surgery. Nobody likes going to surgery. And uh, yeah, if you don't need it, if you can somehow work around it, um, they're better off for it. But that will do it for this week's P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting your questions and topics. If you have a future question that you would like answered on the show, again, follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine. You can also help support the show by becoming a friend of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash Machine as you get an opportunity to ask additional questions to our guests, be able to ask additional questions for P.O. Socks and Jim also does a mailbag where he answers questions straight from our Patreon supporters. It goes a great deal in helping support this show and the website. So if you are interested in getting more content from us, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And that will do it for this edition of the Socks Machine Podcast. I want to thank our guest Jim Callis from MLB Pipeline for joining us again. And if you just discovered the Socks Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store and search Socks Machine to subscribe there. You can subscribe on Spotify. Search Socks Machine and Spotify and click follow to get notifications of new episodes. We're in the Google Play Music Store for the Android smartphone users. And of course, audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. Your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. 
Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G, because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.